Super 70 Sports Podcast. Oh, hell yeah. Welcome to the Super 70 Sports Podcast. I'm Ricky Cobb. And you know, they say baseball is a game of inches. A break here or a break there can be not only the difference between victory and defeat, on rare occasions it can be the difference between perfection and being almost perfect. Joining me now on the Super 70 Sports Hotline, very excited to have on a a dear friend of mine and the author of the new book, Almost Perfect, The Heartbreaking Pursuit of Pitching's Holy Grail, Joe Cox joins me. Joe, how are you? Man, I'm doing great. I think it was Yogi Berra who said it's an honor to be anywhere, but I'm especially (laughs) glad to be here. (laughs) Well, I'm thrilled to have you. We go back a long time. We've been uh, we've been good friends for going on 20 years now, which I would say uh, probably makes you feel old. But uh, given the head start I had on life, it it really makes me feel old. But uh, you were you were 17 years old, I think, when we met. And now here yeah, you that is true. here you are, uh, accomplished author. Now, how many books does this make for you now, Joe? This is number five. Um, I've got another one which will be out, I think, late May. Although I plead a certain amount of ignorance, it's not solely mine. It was a book I did with some people from Saber Society for American Baseball Research uh, about no hitters, which kind of float out of the almost perfect thing. Uh, but I did a couple chapters in there. I wrote about Dave Steeb in there, which was easy because I'd just written about Dave Steeb and almost perfect. And then I also did a uh, couple chapters about Tom Browning, just a random name I picked off the list. So yeah. watch for that in the not too distant future. Tom Tom Browning, who was, who was perfect in 88, right. 88, I believe. I think I listened to that game on the radio, actually. Being from uh, Kentucky, as as you are as well, uh, we used to pick up the Cincinnati Reds radio broadcast, and I believe I listened to that one. Yeah, that, there weren't a lot of people at the ballpark. It was a, a night game that got pushed back because of rain, and uh, they ended up playing it at about uh, 10.30 at night. So it's one of those games where it's good that you're honest and so you listen on the radio because there's probably – 100,000 people who say they were there, but in fact, there were probably more like 5,000 people there. <laughs> it's funny how that's always the case uh, with these great achievements. But I, I, I have to ask you, I know uh, your first, I believe, three books were more involved around basketball. I know you had two that were purely basketball and one that was about uh, a, a longtime uh, basketball announcer at uh, the, the University of Kentucky. What? What led you to take on a baseball book, and particularly what led you to this idea of writing about the guys who who came so close to immortality and and came up just a bit short? Um, Good question. The the baseball book thing, I may be the only person in the history of Southeast Kentucky where I'm from who was a bigger baseball fan than a basketball fan, but... uh, you know, I grew up watching WGN and, and listening to Harry and Steve, uh, you know, feel our way through another 70 and 90 season or 10. Uh, and it, it stuck on me, and I love baseball. I, I, I do love basketball. Uh, I've written about it a couple of times, but always wanted to do uh, a baseball book. And, you know, as far as this specific idea, my one criteria 
Uh, this is about as lowbrow as it gets, but I try to write books that I'd want to read. Uh, my, my theory is if, if I wouldn't want to read it, why would I write it to make somebody else read it? So uh, with that in mind, uh, I was brainstorming for baseball ideas, and I'd seen two or three books about the guys who pitch perfect games. Uh, and, you know, good stories, enjoy uh, reading about those. But I always felt bad for the guys who got just to the cusp of, of greatness. I mean, to get 26 major league hitters in a row out is, uh, is certainly not a small thing. It's it's a pretty exclusive group between the guys who finished the perfect game and then the guys I wrote about. Uh, it's only happened, you know, what it be, what, under 50 times, I guess, in the history of the major leagues. And, and I just, my, my inner uh, underdog kind of uh, wanted to tell the story of the guys who, who got on the, the doorstep of history and then just missed out on the whole boat. Uh, so that's where it came from. Well, I want to I want to take on a, a number of these, if if not all of them, uh, during the course of this podcast. And there are uh, a couple, well, maybe three or four that are a bit more famous than some of the others. But before we get into the actual almost perfect games, I wanted to ask you about Jim Bunning because as, as I was looking through your book, I, and, and I don't want to lose the plot here. But Jim Bunning, uh, of course, uh, wrote the foreword for, for the book, and that's a pretty darn good get, Hall of Famer and, a, and the author of a, of a Perfect Game himself. But Jim Bunning has 35 grandchildren? That's probably gone up since I interviewed him. But, but yeah, that was the uh, thing that I asked him about. As I said, you know, what's your legacy? And he kind of laughed and said, well, my legacy very literally is my family. Uh, you know, good, good Catholic boy. Uh, who went off and, and had his own nine children, and then his nine children have had, yeah, some 30-some grandchildren. He's got a ton of great-grandchildren. I, I struggle with the exact number, but I know when we talked, one of the things that, that came up that he mentions in the foreword, if he said, if I'm lucky enough to live a few more years, I'll have a 100 you know, lineal living descendants. He's, he's getting up there to like 80-something, 90-something now. Uh, he said, you know, with, with my grandchildren getting older, uh, it's just a matter of time that if I can stick it out a few more years, I, I'm going to have a hundred lineal descendants alive. So, and that, that's more impressive <laughs> than a perfect game right yeah. there. He's a Hall of Famer in the, uh, in the world of reproductivity. It's, forget about his baseball accomplishments. I, you know, I, I'm just impressed by uh, the fact that he's the patriarch of this uh, incredible brood. Of his, well, he is, uh, and, and at least some of the grandchildren got the athletic gene. When I uh, got in touch with Jim, um, I, I got his number through a friend and, and called, and uh, it was a, a Friday afternoon. And he said, "Yeah, I'd, I'd love to to talk with you. Love to help you out with the book. I just can't do it right now because he was in the car driving from his home in northern Kentucky over to somewhere in Virginia, his uh, grandson, uh, Patrick Tolles, used to be the, the starting quarterback at Kentucky. He transferred to Boston College. He was the quarterback there last year, and he was going to watch Patrick play against Virginia Tech, wherever Virginia Tech is over there in Virginia. It was a long car trip, but he said, you know, call me call me on Monday. Uh, but, yeah, he, he, uh, he's apparently passed along some of his uh, his athletic skills genetically as well. Well, th- that's fantastic, and he's, he, I, I suppose, he, is he in his 80s now? Yeah, he yeah. is, he is. But uh, and, uh, just a terrific uh, pitcher, and no question about it. Yeah, I, I didn't realize that he spent a large amount of his career in the minor leagues. He was one of those guys that it was all 
just a matter of getting up to the big show and getting a, a crack at it to show what he could do. But, uh, you know, he, he says in the forward, I, I had people telling me, get out of baseball, get a real job. You're, you're never going to get anywhere with this. You're, you're scrapping around the minor leagues. He said, I pitched probably a thousand innings in the minor leagues, which is hard to imagine, but he did. That's incredible, especially the way that teams today uh, hold these guys in reserve. And, you know, if a, if a guy pitches uh, 80 innings his first pro year, they might stretch him out to 125 the next year. And, you know, back in the old days, they just threw you into deep water, and, and that was that. Very much. And that was a common theme with some of the older pitchers I talked to. Let's talk about these pitchers. There, there are 16 pitchers in this uh, uh, unusual fraternity. And the the first guy in the in the history of uh, Major League Baseball who got within one out and and was denied perfection was a guy named Hooks Wiltsey in 1908 with the New York Giants, I believe. E- educate us uh, about Hooks Wiltsey. Hooks Wiltsey uh, was the guy who was the biggest challenge for me in writing this book because I wanted to get everybody's story how did it feel to get one out from perfection and lose it was it something they thought about a lot how did they deal with it um and hooks Wilty died in the 50s so i knew coming in he was the guy who was going to be my biggest challenge uh but a, a really interesting guy comes up in 1908 uh which was a significant year in, in terms of baseball pennant races because that's the year of the the infamous Merkel Boner, I, I guess we can say that on the podcast. Uh, <laughs> we can. I, I've got the seven-second uh, delay here. We'll just drop that, Joe. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. The Merkel screw-up, which is probably, ironically, more profane, but, but sounds better. Uh, but, but that's that year, uh, and that's his team. But Hooks, on July the 4th, 1908, uh, they play Philadelphia, and he sets 26 guys down in a row. He's pitching this absolutely great game. He gets a uh, a one-two count on the 27th hitter, which is the opposing pitcher, and he throws just a beautiful pitch right on the corner, strike three. He, he's completed nine perfect innings. He doesn't have the perfect game because his team hasn't scored, but at least, you know, he's got nine perfect innings. The only problem is the home plate umpires, that got him Cy Riggler, uh, just completely blows the call uh, to ball two. Mm. But... Uh, this doesn't seem like a huge deal until the very next pitch when he goes inside on the opposing pitcher and hits him in the stomach. So, end of perfecto, uh, you know, should have should have had the 27th out, loses it due to what was universally acknowledged. And, I mean, the, the, the Philadelphia newspapers, the New York newspapers, everybody says the pitch was a strike. I just flat missed it. Um so no no perfect game. He does end up with a ten inning no hitter. He, he uh, gets the next batter and then sets uh, the Phillies down one two three in the tenth. And the Giants finally get him a run and he wins the game. Uh, but no perfect game. But but the cool thing about this again for for me as a researcher, my problem is how am I ever going to learn anything you know real about this? How can I ask the, the questions of a guy who's been dead for you know almost sixty years? I, I go to the Hall of Fame. I pull Hooks Wiltsey's file, and lo and behold, there is a hand-typed autobiography that he wrote in the 50s before he passed away, in which he discusses his near-perfect game. That's amazing. What a, what a stroke of good fortune for you. Yeah, that's that's one of the times when you, you feel like uh, 
you know, it felt like Tommy Lasorda is like the, the the big guy in the sky is wearing Dodger blue, except, you know, he, he wanted Joe Cox to get his book done. So. <laughs> well, you know, and, and Wiltsy, I believe, is one of relatively few of the guys on this list that at least got out of there with a no-hitter, right? Yeah, only three. Only three of them. So, so we'll, uh, we'll touch on those guys. And, and also, this is not going to be the last time that an umpire figures prominently in the uh, <laughs> demise of perfection. No, not at all. The, the, the next one happens in 1917, and this is one of the more famous ones, I think, uh, and, and really, in, in some ways, uh, maybe the most unique of all of them, which is Ernie Shore of the Red Sox. And I'm sure that this is one that at least some of my audience is going to be aware of. Ernie Shore came on in relief and was perfect from there. Do you want to? Uh, and, and he came on in relief for a, a pretty famous pitcher as well, as I recall. He did. He did. He's not the famous guy in the perfect game. The famous guy in the perfect game is the guy who wasn't perfect. It was Babe Ruth uh, in his pre-outfield home run hitting days. Uh, it was a, a very good pitcher, but he, he starts a game against uh, the Washington Senators, and the first batter comes up, and Ruth misses with four straight pitches. Ball one, ball two, ball three, ball four. Uh, but after every pitch, he gets angrier and angrier at the home plate umpire. And, you know, we go from kind of there's a word or two and there's a glare. to Finally, after ball four, and it's funny, I have Babe Ruth's account of what was said as well as a more neutral and much more profane account of what was said but <laughs> but some harsh words are passed and the babe goes in and, and throws a punch at the umpire basically he's lucky he didn't really connect and do serious damage to the guy but he did enough damage to get himself ejected from the game i love how uh, in, i love how in 1917 like today that's uh you, you know you're, ba- you're banned from baseball in 1917 i feel like that kind of thing was just frowned upon yeah, yeah, they, they didn't like it, but, but you know, it, tempers flare. I mean, we're probably lucky he didn't meet the umpire under the grandstand now at that job and, uh, and continue the fight or something like that. But, uh, but yeah, it, it, it does get him tossed. Ernie Shore comes in, and the Washington, with a rare moment of, of intelligent baseball strategy here, decides, uh, okay, this guy's cold, he's just in the game. The guy who Ruth walks takes off for second on the first pitch, and uh, the the catcher who actually not only did Ruth get ejected, Ruth's catcher got ejected, so it's an entirely new battery, but the new catcher comes in, and he throws the, the guy out on the first pitch, and then Shore proceeds to sit down the next 26 guys in a row and pitch sort of kind of a perfect game. Uh, it it might have been a perfect game. It's still called a no-hitter. Uh, there were people who were calling it a perfect game in the early 80s when Ernie Shore died. In 1991, the, the Baseball Statistics Committee, I don't remember their exact name, but they said, no, it's, it's definitely not a perfect game. It's a no-hitter. Take all the fun out of everything, these statistics committees. Absolutely. Ernie Shore. I, that, that's but 100 years ago. That That's just remarkable to me. That's something that... We're going to see more uh, near-perfect games in the future, uh, rare as they are, but Ernie Shore's feet, I I can't imagine that ever being duplicated. No, and and it comes in pretty much cold. The plan wasn't necessarily for him to go out there and and pitch a great deal of time, but uh, particularly in those days with a much shorter starting rotation, uh, I believe they were playing a doubleheader, and the manager is just kind of in a bind here. He's 
he pitched uh, Smokey Joe Wood, I think, maybe the day before. So, you know, Ruth's his other big gun, and he's gone one batter into the game, and he's sitting short out there and says, hey, just, you know, stall around, kill a little time, do what you can. If, if you get hit, I'll get somebody else in there to, to take care of it. But nobody's really expecting Ernie Shore to go out there and, and shut the other team down, but he does. So so the next two times this happens, the, the third uh, almost perfect pitcher is uh, Tommy Bridges of the Tigers in 1932. And Tommy Bridges had a, had a pretty darn good career. I, I know that there are some who would argue that uh, maybe he ought to be in the Hall of Fame. Uh, you know, he's one of those kind of borderline type, uh, type of guys. What was the circumstances of Tommy Bridges' uh, dance with immortality? Bridges did have a good career, and, and his near-perfect game came when he was pretty young. It would have been a surprise because he had a fair amount of control trouble uh, early in his career. He was known as a pitcher mostly for having a big sweeping curveball, uh, but I know I've actually got a, a, a quote in the book from an umpire of the era who, who you know, was, was doing an interview somewhere where they said, what's the toughest pitch you've got to call? And he said, Tommy Bridges' curveball. It breaks so hard, it's hard for me to get a good read on when it's a strike and when it isn't. Um, so apparently that was a common problem for him. So he walked a lot of people. So, But again, as is the case in so many of these games, it's it's hilarious. They, uh, if you pick a random opponent for one of these games, take a guess on the Washington Senators because they were <laughs> it for Ernie Shore. They're it for Tommy Bridges. They come up a couple more times. Um, and Bridges... There, there was kind of a mini controversy with Bridges' game in that he gets the 27th batter and his team is up 13 to nothing. Um, but the 27th batter, again, you could do the math, it's the pitcher spot. Uh, and Walter Johnson is the Senators' manager at this point, and he doesn't leave the pitcher in the hit. He brings on a pinch hitter. Uh, it's, you know, it seems like standard baseball strategy. It's, it's not anything surprising, but at the time it was. Uh, the pinch hitter is a guy named Dave Harris, who apparently was a good pinch hitter. Gets a, a clean base hit, breaks up the perfect game. Bridges gets the next guy, you know, ends up with a one hitter. But I came across multiple contemporary accounts that were talking about what terrible sportsmanship it was from Walter Johnson to send up a pinch hitter. And, uh, I mean, you, you had guys even on the Senators saying, hey, you know, I, we, we hate to think I got a hit, uh, which, which was just kind of funny to me. Uh, this is the first time it comes up that a pinch hitter breaks up the near-perfect game, but most of these were broken up by pinch hitters. But Walter Johnson's kind of the the guy who uh, is the first person to come across this situation, and, and in part because of his strategy, and in part because Tommy Bridges is cool about it and says, yeah, I'd have done the same thing. I, I didn't want a, a cheapy, perfect game. Why wouldn't you send up a pinch hitter? Uh, I think the, the thinking on it kind of transforms overnight, and nowhere else do I see anybody say, well, gee, that's, that's bad sport. Yeah, by today's standards, Walter Johnson just did what any manager would have done. Oh, absolutely. But but it had to go, I don't know, it had to go maybe a strong statement. Made sure that he did go approach Bridges in the Tiger locker room after the game to talk with him, which suggests that there was an element of, you know, I wasn't trying to disrespect you, I wasn't trying to mess it up. Uh, but, but again, for his part, Bridges is totally cool about it, and it, it, it's a non-story. But it's funny to me that it ever was a story. I suppose the, the only thing that somebody could do today that would fall into that category would be if somebody tried to lay down a bunt, probably. Yeah, which which may have happened in the short game. Uh, again, it's funny you get into old-time accounts. 
But the Shore game, Shore told somebody toward the end of his life, gave an interview talking about the game, that the last batter bunted. But it's funny, I, I found like four different accounts and nobody agreed how the last out was made. Some One guy said it was a bunt, one guy said it was a swinging bunt, one guy said it was a routine ground ball. I don't know what happened. <laughs> you know what they say about eyewitness accounts, right? You know, the, 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 the guy I didn't get to probably said the guy hit it off the, the wall, but the outfielder made a brilliant catch on it instead of being a bunt. So I don't know. So, so we have a 26-year gap. Again, highlighting what uh, what rare instances these these things actually are to even get within and out of a perfect game. And, and Billy Pierce, a pretty darn good left-hander for the White Sox, almost gets his in uh, in '58. Mm-hmm. He does, Billy. It's funny that to have several of these guys be kind of on the cusp of the Hall of Fame. When I started on the book, Pedro hadn't been inducted yet. He's the only one who is in. Uh, but Tommy Bridges, Billy Pierce, some more guys that I'm sure will. We'll talk about there's a lot of really good pitchers on this list, not surprisingly, uh, but a lot of guys who've been unlucky in the Hall of Fame as well as unlucky in perfect games. Uh, Pierce faces, guess who? The Washington Senators, amazing as it may be. Here they are again. And his 27th batter uh, hits a ball that, that's just kind of a bloop down the line. One of the worst nightmares in these kinds of situations is the guy who gets a hit and doesn't even hit the ball really hard. And this guy just bloops a double in between the the first baseman and the right fielder. Uh, so in the perfect game there. But uh, but the Senators, what can you say? They got themselves in in position to get uh, shut out a lot, but then they get the hit with the twenty seven. <laughs> yeah, they redeem themselves at the last moment, sort of. You know, and, P- and Pierce is the first guy who was actually uh, alive. Uh, at least when you began this project, and I know uh, for a while, and I know as, as we'll discuss as we go through this, obviously you were you were trying to get in touch and, and and hear it from the horse's mouth on as many guys as you could, like like any uh, any good uh, author uh, doing his due diligence. And unfortunately, I believe Mr. Pierce uh, was having some health difficulties and, and passed away not long ago. Yeah, he did. And when I reached out to the White Sox, the word was. He'd love to talk with you. He's having some health problems right now. Let's take a rain check and check back. And about a month later, uh, he did pass away from cancer. Um, you know, a, a guy who is incredibly beloved. And uh, I was lucky to get to hear an interview that he did. Uh, that was another one of my Hall of Fame finds. If I couldn't talk to him, at least I got to hear somebody else talk with him. And, and just one of those guys who nobody had a bad word about. Uh, everybody appreciated him had a heck of a career won 211 games um you know his, his numbers on the outfield wall there in in Chattown over at the uh, u.s cellular field uh but but a guy who hasn't been in the hall of fame and, and really one of the guys out of this group who I'd, I'd like to see that change i hate that it didn't happen when he was alive but uh I'd campaign for Billy Pierce. Yeah, absolutely. He's, he certainly has a good case. The next one is uh, maybe, I, you know, maybe it's the greatest achievement uh, of all of them. I suppose that it is, quite frankly, and maybe a better achievement than than any of the perfect games that are in the books. 1959, Harvey Haddock's of the of the Pirates. Uh, I want to say that they were playing the Braves that night. They were. 1959, he throws 12 perfect innings and ultimately comes up empty in maybe one of the cruelest twists of fate in in baseball history because i i can't imagine 
pitching a perfect game and then getting a third of the way to another perfect game and uh, ultimately not even winning the game. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And you think about what a bizarre accomplishment this was. It's not entirely uncommon to see a pitcher go through the lineup twice cleanly. They get 18 up, 18 down. I mean, it doesn't happen every day, but I'd say it happens a handful of times in any given season. Uh, not a particular rarity. But obviously the third time around is, is the hard part. It's the time you're getting tired, people have seen you twice, they're figuring your stuff out, and that's where those numbers dwindle to the handful of guys who get a perfect game. But for Haddix to go through the lineup an entire fourth time, it's it's unapproached. Nobody's ever done anything like it in with modern pitch counts and, and you know, uh, Monday morning quarterbacks, backseat drivers, however you want to say it, the, the, the fan base would not stand for a guy to work into the 13th inning of a game unless he could somehow do it in, you know, 85 pitches or something. And, and no, uh, no offense to the Washington Senators, but he did this against a, a really potent Braves lineup. You're talking about uh, Henry Aaron and Eddie Matthews and Joe Adcock and all of those guys. I mean, that, yeah, that, that yeah, lineup I mean, was Braves, incredible. Yeah, the, 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 uh, the Braves have won the 57 World Series and they won the pennant in 58 and lost the series to the Yankees in seven games. Uh, this, this is definitely not a weak lineup that he's facing. And, and I know at the time of the game, the game is played at the end of May. Hank Aaron was on an absolute tear, was hitting over 400 for the season. Uh, yeah, Eddie Matthews, Joe Adcock, a lot of talent on this Milwaukee Braves team. And Haddix is a very unimposing pitcher at this point in his career. He had a few big years earlier, but he's kind of at the point in his career where he's a solid number three guy, maybe a number four guy, and just goes out one night in Milwaukee and can't be touched. Uh, just unbelievable. What what did Haddix have to say about it afterwards later in life? What were his feelings on that? Because it's it's hard to imagine that you that you can accomplish something that's really unparalleled in the history of the game, and yet it, it you know it has to sting to to know that you, you not only didn't get the perfect game, you didn't get a no hitter, and, and and ultimately you get tagged with the loss. Yeah, and for the most part, he was pretty stoic about it. He uh, he turned down a lot of uh, you know TV shows and, and national media opportunities in the aftermath of the game because to him it really wasn't anything he particularly wanted to relive. He he'd done something amazing, but he'd lost the game. Um, he, he told a story about something that helped him get over it. He, he's kind of moping around after the game, feeling sorry for himself. And he got, I don't remember if it was a letter or a telegram, but, and I have no idea what the backstory is here, but it was from a fraternity, I, I want to say at Texas A&M. Yeah, Texas A&M. Um, and they wrote him, and the letter said, telegram said, whichever it is, Dear Harvey, tough shit. <laughs> <laughs> well, Larry, that's, that's supportive. It, 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 you know, it, it made him laugh. It made him think, you know, what, what else is there really to say? That's kind of the last word on it i mean you know i, I pitched my butt off I, I i'm on the wrong side of history i, I lose the game uh, but of course for haddocks it's sweetened a little bit because the, the trivia question for haddocks that nobody uh has any reason to think about but i'm sure it was greatly personally satisfying he's the winning pitcher of the 1960 world series game seven wow wow that's pretty good redemption not, yeah, not that, it, not that he it, needs redemption for being perfect for twelve innings. That's probably not the word, but uh, it, at least he got some sweet satisfaction uh, the following year. 
Yeah, absolutely. And and the funny thing is, that's a game he doesn't pitch well. He comes in, he spotted a nine seven lead. He's got some base runners. He lets the base runner score. He he finishes the inning, but it's nine to nine. And then fell in Bill Mazeroski in the series, and, and he's the winning pitcher. Game seven. There you go. See, here we go. If if uh, if Brian Kenny is listening to this, uh, you know he he wants to kill the win. Pitcher wins are. Uh, you know, they're steeped in the tradition of the game, but I just today I was noticing not that anybody in the world should care about my fantasy baseball life, but uh, I noticed that uh, Philadelphia's closer today came in, uh, had a 3-0 lead, gave up three in the top of the ninth, the uh, Phillies get one back in the bottom of the ninth, and so he goes uh, one inning, three earned runs, and picks up the win. Life, Life's not fair. I guess tough shit, Jeremy Hellickson. That's it, man. So, so he gets a W, and, and Harvey Haddix just goes through the lineup four times in a row, mowing him down, and, and gets a loss. I guess that's sort of like what they say. They say that you know the bounce is even out, right? You you don't get that one, but you uh, you pick up the win in the World Series. Let's go to the next guy, and this one is uh, you know for me as a Chicago guy now, of course, originally a Kentucky guy, Milt Pappas, nineteen seventy two at Wrigley Field against the Padres. And this is one of the more famous ones, or infamous, I guess, uh, maybe is how Milt would have uh, described it. Goes 3-2, I believe, on the uh, 27th man. And in his opinion, maybe in the opinion of some others, but most definitely in Milt's opinion, and I believe he held pretty steadfast to this for the rest of his life, uh, he, he thinks he got squeezed. And it seems like, at least for many of those years, Milt was pretty bitter about that, that almost almost like he was more pissed off that he lost the perfect game than he was happy that he had a no-hitter, at least for a long time. Do you think that's a fair assessment? It, it is. I, I was lucky to talk to Milt not long before he passed away, I'm sad to say. But uh, I, I had been forewarned that Milt could be a little bit prickly on a given day, but I must have got him on a good day because he was in a great mood, told me some fantastic stories. But yeah, the, the ice never really thawed. He uh, he said, you know, years after the game, uh, uh, somebody gave me a tape, and I watched it back, and Fremming gets this little smirk on his face. He said, if I'd seen that smirk, I'd have punched him out right there. <laughs> <laughs> what was it he said to Fremming? Like, uh, you know, you're just a fat ass, and, and you know, you could you could have called the perfect game, and you blew it, basically? Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, you, you someday... You know, you could have been in a bar somewhere and said, yeah, I worked the perfect game, but now you can't say it. And then the, the funny thing is, as good of an umpire as Bruce Fremming was, he never did work a perfect game behind the plate. He uh, he was on the basis for Dennis Martinez's perfect game, but he never worked a perfect game behind the plate. And wasn't uh, Fremming's contention that like he wasn't even aware that it was a perfect game? I, I don't know. I, I think I remember him, him saying something to that effect. And... and to give Pappas the benefit of a doubt, the story is a little bit broader even than you painted it. It was he went one two and then he threw three straight sliders working for the outside corner. And uh, I know Randy Hundley has, has said the three two maybe it did miss the two two though apparently was a heck of a pitch too. So uh. Uh, that's yeah, that's tough. Well, I mean, I, I hope that. Uh... In his uh, sunshine years, Milt uh, came to terms with that and was able to enjoy uh, uh, the fact that he threw a no-hitter. And, and, and the reality of it is, is in, in Milt's case, his no-hitter was, was a lot more famous than your average no-hitter just because of the circumstances. Yeah, he, 
he said that very thing to me. Uh, he, he really, there was kind of a making uh, lemonade out of lemons aspect for it because he said, it's funny to me to this day, uh, people will come up to me and say, man, you, you got totally robbed on that. And he said, I, I think I probably get more notoriety as the guy who got screwed out of a perfect game than I would have been if I just finished it. So, so we jump forward 11 years to 1983, the next time that uh, we find ourselves in one of these situations. And oddly enough, it's another guy named Milt, uh, this time Milt Wilcox uh, of the Tigers. And I know that Milt was a guy that you were after uh, for a while, trying to, to pin down an interview, and he proved elusive. But after reading the book, I'm assuming maybe he was out uh, d- doing dog jumping? Yeah, that's his thing. That that was the funny thing with Milt Wilcox. I mean, he's a guy who was a, a pretty good uh, starting pitcher for the Tigers, part of the 84 title run. Uh, and when he gets out of baseball, you know, arm troubles end up uh, ending his career early, as they do for so many of these guys. Uh, he gets into competitive dog jumping. He had a dog named Sparky Anderson, who apparently was like the, the Babe Ruth or Ty Cobb or something of dog jumping. I, I'm not making this up, I promise. Uh, Sparky has apparently since gone on to that great dog jumping place in the heavens. But uh, but yeah, he, he was apparently the, the, the pooch who got Wilcox into this game of dog jumping. That, what, uh, that he what, exact, what exactly is competitive dog jumping? <laughs> I, I mean, honestly, I've never heard of such a thing. No, and there are videos out there. I encourage you to check it out. It seems like a really cool sport that, that people really enjoy. I mean, the name of it's open enough, you, you think, okay, are people jumping over the dogs? No, I, I assure you, it's, it's the dog doing the jumping. <laughs> dogs no, no that's, a, that's a whole different sport right there. I mean, <laughs> get an evil Knievel-type situation going, line up some Dobermans and see how much damage you can do, you know? Yeah. How much do you really trust your vertical? That's the question. <laughs> you know, it's, uh, it's the dogs jump off of, like, docks or things like that. Uh, you, you'll pitch a ball or a frisbee or, or whatever, uh, and, and the dog tries to see how far out it can go and catch, you know, whatever it is that you're pitching. So the obstacle is to, to train your dog to come up with a catch but also be able to, to get a little distance on it. All right. Well, no, no disrespect to Milt, but when when you're in the, the, the high-stakes world of professional dog jumping, that's the story, okay? So I'm just moving on to the next guy. <laughs> I've got... <laughs> Uh, Ron Robinson in 1988 for the Reds, and I, uh, I have to say, I got to give a shout out to a, to a friend of mine, Colin Greer. Colin uh, is a, a Canadian, and we don't hold that against him. But uh, grew, grew up uh, a fan of the Expos, and his favorite player when he was a kid, he assures me that this is true, was Wallace Johnson of all people. Okay, so Colin was a special boy. And Wallace Johnson was his favorite player. And it just so happens that Wallace Johnson plays a significant role in uh, Ron Robinson uh, not realizing uh, his destiny that day. Oh, he does. He breaks it up. Wallace Johnson, to your guys' uh, credit, was one of the toughest outs as a pinch hitter. Just, uh, it's a tough thing to pinch hit. And, and Wallace Johnson was a guy who would come in cold and, and just work the count, give people a tough at bat, and that's exactly what he does to, to Ron Robinson in 1988. The, the thing that I don't think anybody realizes is that Robinson's arm is just absolutely shattered when he pitches this game. He was on a strict pitch count, and he told me the number. I'm, I'm thinking maybe 75, but whatever wow. it was, because he has a perfect game, it gets 
thrown out the window and completely ignored. Uh, but he gets down to Wallace Johnson, and it's an epic at that. I mean, it's one of those ones you can look up on YouTube. And it's fascinating to watch Johnson because Robinson is very clearly nervous. He's going to the rosin bag. He's taking a deep breath several times, and Johnson is just intense. Johnson is like lining the ball foul and just staring holes through Robinson the whole time. Now, this is where I've got to interject about my friend Colin. Now, here and Colin, I hope you don't mind me telling this story, but Colin believed when he was a kid that he could will through the force of concentration and just working his mind that he could will Wallace Johnson to get hits. And so Colin was watching the game that day, and he believes deep within himself that he and Wallace Johnson broke up this perfecto. I, I admire Colin's determination. I, I tried that with Gary Gaetti a few times, but the <laughs> best I could get was a grounder to third base or something. I don't know. <laughs> and it's got to be hard to come in cold as a pinch hitter anyway in that situation. Oh, absolutely. And, and so many of these games are broken up by guys who do uh, come in cold. And I think it's just an aspect of you've got less to lose. If, if you're the 27th out, you're just one of the guys who couldn't hit somebody. But, you know, for the pitcher, it's, it's all on the line right there. And Robinson, I believe, ultimately loses the game as well as the no-hitter. I mean, perfect. No, he, he he wins the game, but he uh, he struggles. Uh, they, they keep him in to pitch to Tim Raines next who hits a two-run homer, okay. so it's 3-2, to two, and then shutout. John Franco comes in and closes it. So Got it. So uh, he, he did have enough cushion to get out of there with the uh, with the win that day. Yeah. Uh, all, and, and, and that would have made it, you know, oddly enough, if he if he had been able to finish it off, that would have been two uh, perfect games for the Reds in 1988, as we were discussing sure. Tom Browning at the top of the podcast. Um, there you go. Dave Steeb, uh, another guy that I know that you spoke with, and, and a guy that was somewhat snake-bitten uh, during his career in the ninth inning of, uh, I believe, more than one game. Uh, he, he came down to the wire and lost a no-hitter in the ninth inning, and on this particular day, he was he was working on perfection. Yeah, yeah. The, uh, this is three times before this game, he's gone down to... Uh, the ninth inning with a no-hitter. Twice he's gotten to the last out and not been able to finish the no-hitter. But yeah, August 4th, 1989, which may or may not be my sister's date of birth, actually. Wow. Uh, yeah, so big day for, for Joe Cox and for Dave Steve. Uh, but, uh. <laughs> I can't believe your sister's but, that old now, by the way, friend. Well, yeah, I just, <laughs> I just, uh, put her out there. Sorry, kid. I think she was 13 or something the last time I saw her, so. It's, it's been a few years. What can I say? But, uh, it was a better day for her than it was for Dave Steve because uh, Roberto Kelly uh, is the 27th batter and it thanks American League for having a real hitter in the nine hole instead of a pitcher or a, a senile pinch hitter. <laughs> uh, and, and Kelly hits a double down the line and that's the fourth time that Steve has approached a no hitter and lost it. And he says after the game, you know, man, I had great stuff today. If I didn't get it today, I'm never going to get it. Uh, but lo and behold, the next year, 1990, which was like the year of the no-hitter, I forget how many no-hitters were thrown that year, but a ton, uh, he does get a no-hitter, and he told me I didn't even have good stuff that day. just worked out. Crazy. That brings it to the uh, to the issue of just how much of this is luck, because as I look through the history of the game, you, you see things like Roger Clemens never threw a no-hitter, Greg Maddox never threw a no-hitter. Um 
Uh, we'll talk about Pedro Martinez momentarily, but I don't think Pedro uh, ever got a no-hitter. Some of the greatest pitchers that you could ever name in the history of the game, just dominating guys who uh, forget about perfection, were, were never able to get a no-hitter. And it's, uh, I think it's testament to the fact that uh, you got to be good, obviously, but you need fortune on your side as well, don't you? Yeah, you you really do, and then you can go through the list of the guys who have pitched no hitters or pitched even perfect games. And yeah, there's some, you know, Sandy Koufax pitched a perfect game. He had Nolan Ryan or the Kings with a no hitter, but there are plenty of guys on that list who are completely obscure and were undoubtedly lucky. Where Steve so many times wasn't lucky. Steve blamed a lot of it on pitch selection. He said uh, too many times. I got too smart for my own good on the last guy. I thought myself, he said, honestly, if I had it to do over again with all of them, I'd just rip back and throw more fastballs and said, here it is, see what you can do with it. Brian Holman is the next guy. And we've, we've got three years in a row here. 88, Robinson, 89, Steve, 1990, Brian Holman, who is a guy that a lot of people have probably forgotten. There's probably more than one person listening to us right now who's like, oh, yeah, Brian Holman. I haven't thought of that name in, in 20 years. For Brian, that was really, I suppose, the, the most monumental uh, achievement of his entire career, right? I mean, he, he was a guy who uh, wasn't in the big leagues for a, for a ton of years. No, he wasn't. He had arm problems and, and was kind of coming up as a promising young pitcher when the Mariners were starting to get really good. I mean, they picked up Griffey, they pick up Buner while he's a Mariner. Uh, so, but he's there for the years when it's still on the ground floor. Um, and a fascinating guy. Brian Holman uh, will always be one of my favorite people in the world because he was the first guy I talked to for this book, and he was incredibly uh, enthusiastic and helpful and told great stories. Um, his it comes on the, the 27th batter is Ken Phelps of Seinfeld. <laughs> Ken Phelps. Uh, Yes. Yeah, yeah Ken Phelps <laughs> takes it deep. It's a homer. Uh, he, he's pitching against the A's. The A's are defending world champions. So we're talking Ricky Henderson, Conseco, McGuire, and it's Ken Phelps who comes in off the bench. And <laughs> of course it was. Uh, of course it was Ken Phelps. It, it would be. But uh, the, the, the best part of Holman's story, uh, he told me his daughter was in college and uh, – and they're calling the role in this college class, and, and one of the other students, you know, hears their last name is Holman, and he says, are, are you any uh, relation to Brian Holman? She says, well, yeah, that's, that's my dad. And he said, well, I'll tell you this. I'm from Seattle. And he said, my old man is watching your dad almost pitch a perfect game, and he gets down the last batter, and the guy hits a home run, and he said, my dad got so mad, he kicked the hole in the wall. <laughs> and... He never would fix the hole. He said, my dad told me that hole is part of Mariner's history. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Wow. I wonder if it's still there, you know? We need Brian Holman to go out there, and uh, we could get like an ESPN 30 for 30 short, I think, on uh, yeah. sending Brian Holman out there to the to the hole, as it were. I would support all of that. I think that's the best <laughs> idea I've heard today. So uh, I was alluding to Pedro a, a bit earlier, 1995 with the Expos. Yes, kids, Pedro pitched for the Expos. Came uh, within one out of a perfect game. And as it turns out, Pedro, as much of a surprise as it may be, as dominant as he was, he, he never had a no-hitter. Take me back to 1995 when Pedro almost 
was perfect. And I've got to give Pedro credit. He should have been perfect. He does the addicts thing. He pitches nine perfect innings. He gets the 27th out. Uh, but the Expos don't get him any runs. Uh, they're playing in San Diego. And in the 10th inning, in the top of the 10th, the Expos go out and score a run. So Pedro comes out for the 10th to try to finish the deal. Uh, and Bip Roberts is the leadoff batter. So he's the 28th batter. And then Roberts hits the ball down the line, and it's a double. Um, Felipe Lou comes and gets Pedro, and Mel Rojas finishes up the one nothing win. Uh, but the, the, the failure of the perfect game isn't on Pedro. Pedro and Harvey Haddock are the only guys who've gone nine perfect innings and then lost it later. And uh, apparently after the game, they, they told Pedro about that, and he said, that's really nice, but I have no idea who Harvey Haddock is. <laughs> has, anybody, has anybody ever thrown a perfect game of longer than nine innings? That's a good question. I'm going to plead the fifth on that. <laughs> I want to say not, but yeah, no, we're. I don't think. Yeah, I want to say not. Uh, one of the more interesting chapters in the book, and I and I have to tell you, they're all interesting. And in the book is almost perfect. The heartbreaking pursuit of pitching's holy grail. I'm talking to Joe Cox, and in the way that you've organized the book, it's it's really beautiful. Each one of these guys' stories is a chapter, and I, I think you do a terrific job of uh, of weaving some uh, background and subtext into these chapters. And in one of the more interesting chapters, and one of the more profound, I felt was the the chapter that you wrote on Mike uh, Mussina. Well, thank you. It wasn't entirely accidental. Uh, sometimes uh, the guys helped me out with that a good deal. In Mussina's case, I watched him almost pitch a perfect game against the Boston Red Sox on September the 2nd, 2001. And of course, we all know what happened nine days later uh, in New York. And so I couldn't talk about September 2nd, 2001, and not talk about September 11th, 2001. And interestingly, Mucina is from this little town in Pennsylvania, and a plane-related tragedy was nothing new to him. This little town, uh, while Mucina was with the Orioles, there was a plane crash that uh, a bunch of kids from Mucina's high school were going, uh, I think, maybe to France, but their plane crashed and a bunch of people uh, were killed. And this was a big deal for Mucina. Mucina, I, I, he didn't make a big deal out of it, but it was the kind of thing where, like, he was writing the names of the victims, like, in the, on the bill of his cap. Uh, and and would, would use his off days from the Orioles whenever he could get over to uh, the little town in Pennsylvania uh, to go to memorial services and things like that. Uh, you know, it, it, it's a small town, and there's no doubt that he knew some of these people pretty well. And it affected him pretty profoundly. So, so oddly enough, you know, he, he loses his perfect game uh, thanks to Carl Everett getting a hit on a one-two pitch <laughs> on nine-two. Carl Everett on nine-eleven oh one. You know, Musin is kind of in, in a familiar mode in that he's been through uh, a tragedy involving his his original hometown, so now his adopted hometown is kind of under the the gun and, and much in the way that he had in Baltimore. You know, Musina tries to find solace in his day-to-day grind, and in doing that, you know, helps uh, a lot of people in New York find some solace from their problems in, in Yankees baseball, as they did in that memorable fall. Very, a very poignant chapter that's bigger than than baseball. You know, Musina, I think, is a guy that uh, will join Pedro in the in the Hall of Fame. Don't you think? Oh, absolutely. Um, and again, there, there's your, your deceptive 
nature of the win. Uh, but when you stop thinking about that, you look at Nisina's resume, and if you blot out the fact that he quote unquote only won 270 games, he'd already be in. Uh, it's just a matter of time on him. It's funny, Carl Everett made me chuckle because I don't know if you remember this or not, but Carl Everett doesn't believe dinosaurs existed. <laughs> so. I do remember it. Yeah. I, and Carl Everett's not a popular guy. It's funny. I've had multiple people who were Red Sox fans tell me, man, I felt bad for Mucina that night because it was Carl Everett. We didn't even like Carl Everett. <laughs> right. Yeah, if you're going to lose it, you got to lose it to a dinosaur denier. It's, <laughs> I don't know. It's no, it's no good. Well, the next one is certainly uh, very famous, and it happened not that long ago. We've had a flurry of these in the last few years, haven't we, Joe? We have. It's increasing frequency. Armando Galarraga in uh, 2010 and uh, this one you gotta really feel sorry for Armando Galarraga because he, he, he pitched a perfect game and unfortunately a, a very good umpire and by all accounts a very good man Jim Joyce just made an honest judgment error yeah and, and the, one of the things I tried to talk about because the Galarraga story has been told a few times it is probably one of the more famous games in the last decade, certainly, if not longer, um, is that I feel like the uh, the Galarraga game, in many ways, spearheads the expansion of instant replay. Mm-hmm. Uh, when the Galarraga game happens, you can have replay on home runs. You can go back and say, well, is that fair or foul? But that's all you can use it for. Well, I think you can use it, too, to say is it a double, is it a home run? But it's a very narrow window that umpires have the ability to use replay for. I feel like the Colorado game may be the turning point where, you know, there's this romantic notion in baseball where you go, oh, you know, human error is part of what makes baseball special and wonderful. And I understand the, the traditional aspect of that, but man, human error sucks. That's a terrible argument and you know for Armando Calaraga I'm sure he'd rather have the unromantic look under the hood where you go you know Jim Joyce was wrong Jason Donald's out by three feet uh you pitched a perfect game but at that point it's not an option um but but yeah I mean you you had people calling for the the president to get involved you 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 know there was the hopes that uh that Bud Selig would do something which anybody uh should have known better than that but uh but Seeley could have stepped up there and made that happen, don't you think? He could have. I, I, gosh, I hate to say he should have, but I hate to say he shouldn't have too. Just because this is, it's a unique thing. There, there's really no time in history, and it's funny. I mean, there've been blown calls that have affected pennant races. There've been blown calls that have affected. I shoot the the Todd Worrell call in 1985 is almost a carbon copy of this. It's the same play, and the, the calls missed the same way. Sure enough. Um, yeah, that's right. But uh, and that affects the the World Series winner. But yeah, it doesn't really capture people's imagination the way the Galarraga game does. And it's just a complete quagmire. It's one of those things where you kind of feel like anything anybody does with it's just going to make it worse. You Darvish is next on the list, and I, I remember watching this one. I, I was watching MLB Network, and uh, they went to the to the perfect game. I think in the ninth inning and just promptly uh, when I start watching. I don't think that I have uh, Colin Greer-like powers, but uh, when I watched it, I felt like I put the jinx on you, Darvish, that night. <laughs> I've kind of been there a few times myself. Maybe I'll just turn the, the channel and then see if this guy can get it without me 
watching. Um, yeah, you know, 27th out to grounder up the middle that he almost can't quite uh, come up with. Um, I will say one of the, the highlights of the U Darvish chapter is uh, I felt compelled to write about Japanese baseball. Um, and in doing that, uh, I learned about some fascinating characters. I mean, my, my favorite guy that I learned about, I'm not even going to try his name, Ricky. I, I'm, <laughs> I'm going to get it wrong. But uh, I, I call him the, kind of the Japanese John McGraw because he was this very early proto Japanese <laughs> manager. He was five foot three, and I have an account that said that he made players field ground balls quote until they were half dead, motionless, and froth was coming out of their mouths. <laughs> wow, that was how I felt at the end of my uh, previous marriage. <laughs> Yeah, I, I think we've all known uh, a, a guy like uh, good old, uh, yeah, I'm not even going to try with the name again, but, but on page 186 if you want to get the book, and, and I learned about some fascinating people. And, and Japanese baseball is fascinating. I, I've got five or six books on the subject, and uh, Darvish is certainly an interesting character and uh, you know, tremendous pitcher. I was hoping the Cubs would would sign him at the time when when he was posted and came over but uh yeah, obviously he's a very dominating guy and and uh is is poised to have a heck of a career uh the the next guy on the list which uh which also occurred in 2013 is that more in the journeyman category Yusmero Petit and I believe if I recall correctly you you made the trek out to St. Louis I want to say to uh have a have a face-to-face sit down with him I did and and let me tell you I mean you We've been buddies a long time. You, you know me. It's an amazing thing. Uh, there's a certain element of being an imposter in doing this stuff. I just request my credential and say, I want to come talk to these guys. And I do want to come talk to them. And it was for a legitimate purpose. I'm holding the book in my hand. But, man, it was really cool to get to go in the Giants' uh, dugout in St. Louis and set up you, 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 baseball players, at least in 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 my experience, they sit uh, kind of the way you do in Little League. You don't sit on the bench in the dugout. You sit on the top of the bench and your feet go where your butt would normally go in, in the uh, typical bench-sitting mode. And just sit there during batting practice and talk with Yusmero uh, Petit about the, the game where he was almost perfect. Uh, there, there's an element of, like, I do that, and somewhere the, the 10-year-old who still lives inside of me is like, man, this is cool. This is why you do this. Isn't that one of the best things about it? Uh, with uh, all the books that you're writing now, and you know, I, I can't wait to, to devour the next one, but it's just... It's a remarkable thing when you find yourself in that position because I think for any of us that are real true fans of sports, you know, you've always got a little bit of that ten-year-old kid inside you. You do, you really do, and and that was one of the things that made Petit cool is that his story was about following that ten-year-old kid. He was almost entirely out of baseball. He was playing in the Mexican league and living in what was described, uh, I don't even know what this entirely means, as a retirement hotel where he was paying $115 a month in rent. Uh, and and that's, that's where his career is at a couple of years before this. But he gets a chance with the Giants. He works his way back up. He pitches this game. And really for him, he's one of the guys who you talk about this game with, and, and he says, Man, I'm so glad I pitched that game because it got him a little notoriety. It helped him hook on with the Giants and then with the Nationals. And he was a guy who was very much on the fringes. And because of this game, he kind of got another look out of some people and has had a chance to stick around, make a good living, and live 
his dream in baseball. Yeah, so that was a cool element. And he's really he's really been primarily a relief pitcher during his career. So it's yeah, it's interesting yeah, we, he was even in that position, really. That's it. You know, he's he's come almost exclusively out of the bullpen uh, in the last few years, but but he gets to start that day. Um, and it, it, the funny thing is that his real claim to fame in a baseball sense, you crack the record book, he's got a very cool record of his own. He misses his perfect game on the 27th batter, but he has the all-time record for the most consecutive outs done. He did it over multiple games. He got 46 guys in a row out. <laughs> wow. So, you know, I mean, he, he, he started a game, he came out of the bullpen a couple of times, and it just it adds up. He got 46 guys in a row out, and he gets up and hits the pitcher. But that's the all-time MLB record. And, uh, you know, so we've talked about losing the perfect game and all that. And I said, okay, so so what's it mean to be in the in the Major League Record Book? I mean, people flip through there. There's Cy Young. There's Nolan Ryan. There's Sandy Koufax. There's just Merrill Petit. And he kind of smiled, and he said, it's pretty cool. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I love that. Uh, the, 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 and speaking of things that I love, I, I, I love the last one on the list. And, of course, it's the last one for now because the the beautiful thing about baseball is somebody could be perfect or somebody could be almost perfect tomorrow. But uh, Max Scherzer, I have a little bit of affection for because he's the guy who uh, allowed me to get my name dropped in your book. There you go. You're on page 227, <laughs> and uh, and it's entirely because of Max Scherzer. Uh, a further, you know, incident into the random nature of all of this, though. Um, I was in Atlanta. I was on a just a family vacation and was preparing to take my kids to their first ever big league game, which is that day. Uh, and in fact, you know, I had gotten my tickets, was getting ready to leave for the ballpark and looked at my phone and what do you know, there's a message from you and you said, hey, you're writing another chapter now, buddy. <laughs> That's right. I was watching that game and as, as soon as it happened, I thought to myself, well, I gotta, I gotta get in touch with Joe. He may not know about this yet. I gotta tell you, I, uh, have enjoyed, uh, reading through the book so much. I certainly cherish my signed copy uh, of this. Where can people pick this? book up uh because i, I you know i i've got to give it uh, a tremendous recommendation it's just so well written and even though you are a, a, a degenerate as a human being joe i uh i gotta give credit where credit's due uh you you, re- you really nailed it and i think it's a book that people uh really need to read baseball fans are going to enjoy the heck out of it where can they pick this thing up uh, all the usual spots uh, amazon uh the, the bookstores uh, barnes and noble books a million those kinds of places uh, anywhere where uh, where fine books are sold, or uh, it, you know, if everything else fails, give me a holler on the old Twitter. Uh, there is an at almost perfect BK, just because I couldn't get the whole word book in there. Uh, shout at me on there, and if everything else fails, I can uh, I can scrounge up a copy myself and, and help people out. So the Twitter uh, handle is at almost perfect BK. That's uh, that's that's one of them. There's also at KY Joe Cox. Why I have two Twitters, I don't know. Just uh, I wanted to try to, to separate the book from the rest of the hillbilly genius that is my <laughs> life. 
Well, people need to give Joe a follow uh, on Twitter. Uh, follow the Almost Perfect uh, BK account, and uh, you'll be able to keep up with all the goings on uh, with this terrific book and and uh, the author uh, Joe Cox. You know, w- one last thing I want to ask you about is uh, uh, I saw you make an appearance on MLB Network not long ago. Your uh, your handsome mug uh, there on my television. Uh, what was that experience like, and how was it going on? I mean, you know, MLB Network. Are you kidding me? Any any baseball fan that's got to kind of be surreal, I would suppose. It was partially surreal because it was literally just a spur of the moment thing that uh, you know the day before was like, hey, you, you want to do this? And uh, believe me, I didn't make him twist my arm too much. Um, great guys, uh, did, did an incredible job just in my uh, little segment of, of calling some of the, the cool videos, and that's out there on YouTube if you want to look it up uh, and. and see the videos of some of the uh, just missed perfect games uh, as well as, as you know, Mike Grizzle's visage as well. <laughs> but uh, but uh, they're good guys. Uh, here's some, some inside uh, trivia for you. I'll tell you this uh, and, and hopefully not get myself banned for life. But, uh, <laughs> no, we don't want that. You know, no, but uh, immediately before I was on the show, you know, I've got the audio feed in my, in my earpiece so I can hear what they're talking about. And what do you think two dudes are talking about on on MLB Network right before they they come out of a commercial break and talk to me about this book? Dog jumping. (laughs) It's all mostly random. It was Beyonce. It was the the news about Beyonce was broken, so they they were they were discussing all things Beyonce. Well, you know, Al Leiter, uh, you know, uh, probably you know, huge Beyonce fan from what I from what I get. No, I don't have any. Who knew? Who knew? Yeah, well, it was it was a great segment. You uh, handled yourself quite well uh, in the spotlight, and those guys really seemed like you know they were in tune with uh, what the book was all about. So I, I thought it was a great segment. I appreciate it, and uh, and obviously my congratulations on the podcast and the success of Super Seventy Sports. Uh, if if people had known us back in the days when we were sitting through political science classes with. <laughs> An Asian guy from Alabama who wanted to talk about being accosted in a unisex restroom or a, a guy from New Jersey who loved polo shirts with lobsters on them or Thought an old that... man who believed that a perfect test score was a platonic ideal that could never be reached and would thus give you a 99, I'm not sure people would have believed. No, it's uh, it's pretty remarkable. We've uh, we've made it out of the gutter. I think it was... Uh, I think it was uh, our, our, our friend from New Jersey, who uh, wasn't his theory that uh, H- Hannibal Lecter's problem was, is he just needed to get laid. I believe it was indeed his theory, <laughs> and then and, and that prompted another guy to confess that despite forty years of celibacy or whatever it was, he hadn't killed anybody. So that was a great. <laughs> yeah, thing. surprising uh, admissions during <laughs> during class for two hundred, Alex. That was a winner right there. <laughs> yeah, that was a bit of a moment where the. Uh, that was like the you know the needle went across the record and everything everything stopped and you heard a cricket you know a half a mile away when that guy said that but uh, those are the moments in education that you remember right it's not the it's not the historical facts it's it's men declaring that they're forty year old virgins uh, d- during class I think that's what sticks I, with us I think that's absolutely it at the end of the day you can give away the prestige you can give away the money but you can't give away the bizarre experience <laughs> <laughs> no you can't well the book. Is- is almost perfect the heartbreaking pursuit of pitching's holy grail 
He's Joe Cox. Do yourself a favor. Pick up a copy. I'm sure that if you, you go through the right channels, Joe would be happy to sign a copy for you as well. Joe, we've had a lot of years. We've had a lot of experiences. So pleased to see uh, how successful you are right now with these books. And do me a favor, just selfishly, I want to see more baseball books, okay? Hey, another one's coming, man. It's in the hopper. Look for it next spring. All right. Sounds good. Thanks so much for coming on, Joe. Thank you, brother. Big thanks to Joe Cox, who, in addition to being a wonderfully gifted writer, is also a great guy and a dear friend. And this really is a beautifully written book on a most fascinating subject matter. Pick up a copy for yourself. You're not going to regret it. I promise you. My guest next week is a friend of the podcast and one of the sharpest comedic minds in Hollywood. I've been a fan of his for over 25 years now. Nick Bakai is back and we'll be talking sports and comedy. And yes, the dangers of being a kid growing up in the 1970s. I mean, remember the playground equipment? The lack of seatbelts? The secondhand smoke everywhere in the air? Somehow, we all survived to tell the tale. Don't miss Nick McKay's triumphant return to the podcast next week. And remember to never miss an episode of the Super 70 Sports podcast. I'm Ricky Cobb. I'll see you next time.